rather than the overhead. It is on page 544. The word selah appears twice in the psalm. This is a musical direction and there are a number of opinions as to what it means. It could be amen, alleluia, or this is a crescendo. I hope I remember to read it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Oliver. If you don't know me, and it's my privilege to uh, preach to you from Psalm 24 this morning. Uh, it's been lovely to worship with you. There's been some great songs. I've really enjoyed it. But before I start, let me pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty Lord, thank you for bringing us together in worship of you this morning. Thank you that you are here by your Spirit. Speak to us through your word in accordance with your promises. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Psalm 24 is a psalm by a king and a psalm for a king. This psalm was written by King David. We see that at just above verse 1. And it was probably written to celebrate the uh, Ark of the Covenant coming finally to rest in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. If you don't know about that event, that's okay. Just know that for King David, this event was significant. It was very important. See, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence with his people. And it was coming to rest in the heart of the Promised Land, the heart of Israel, Jerusalem. So for King David, for Israel, this was a time of great blessing and joy. So this is a psalm written by a king, King David. But it's also a psalm written for a king. Uh, this is the king of glory that we see in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. It's written for the king of glory. And David knew this king, the identity of this king, as his God, the Lord Almighty of Israel, uh, the one who had given the Israelites the promised land, Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant, every good thing they had. But to us Christians today, we know this Lord by a different name. His name is, of course, Jesus. Jesus is the king of glory that David has written the psalm about. And in the psalm, King David presents us with three main ideas about this king of glory. 
Uh, the first one is the basis of his rule. He's going to talk about the basis of the rule of the king of glory. Secondly, he's going to talk about the character of the subjects of this king. And thirdly, he's going to talk about the worthiness of the king of glory. So let's get started. Firstly, the basis of the king of glory's rule. Well, David tells us this at the beginning of the psalm. If we go to verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So King David says that everything in all of creation is the king of glories to rule. It's his. Every person, every plant, every panoramic view, every protein and proton is his. And if you read what David says there, he doesn't make any exceptions. There's no buts, ifs. No, God owns it all. So in the first two verses of Psalm 24, we're sort of swept up with David above all of creation, and we're looking down, and David says, God owns it all. It's all his. And why? What is the basis of the king of glory's rule over this world? Well, it's simple. Verse 2, because he made it. He founded it upon the seas. He established it upon the waters. So this statement of David's, although it's simple, is actually very profound. It is. It should change our lives. But why? Well, because David is either wrong or he is right when he says this. He's either wrong or he is right. And if he's wrong about this, then no one needs to take any heed of the king of glory because the basis of his rule over everything is a lie. There's big stakes here. But if King David is right, the whole world is God's and the whole world must obey him. There is a moral obligation uh, so no matter what our personal convictions might be, if we believe in the king of glory or not, if David is right, Jesus has every right to be our king, doesn't he? To govern the directions of the lives of his creatures, of all of his creation. So if we really believe David with what he says in verses 1 and 2, I think that should mean two things for our lives, at least two. I'm only going to talk about two. Uh, firstly, we should be the most confident, uh, secure, and bold people in the world. As Christians, that should be us. Uh, if we are on the side of the God who rules the world, the God who made it all, well, he is ultimately in the driver's seat, isn't he? And if that God who rules over everything makes a promise... There is nothing in all of creation that can prevent him from keeping it. And our God has not just given us one good promise that we can hold on to. God has given us a thousand, thousand different promises that we turn to every day for confidence and security and refuge. And here's a, here's a famous promise that God gives us, one that's grounded in his rule over all of creation. Paul writes in Romans, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So Christian, with promises like this one, and there are many, uh, be at rest, be at peace, be secure. If the God who made everything is for us, who can stand against us? So we should be bold. That's a result of knowing that God made everything. Well, the second thing I think it means for our lives is that we should join the King of Glory in his mission. Or in other words, uh, his plans should become our plans. We are his subjects. We are called to do his will in the world. Uh, Our desires should be his desires. Now, Jesus made his ultimate plan clear uh, to his church before he rose on high to be with his father. In Matthew 28, we read Jesus saying to his disciples this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's a big mission that he has given us. But this is God's world, and our calling as Christians is to show the world what it looks like to obey its king. Our calling is to teach the the world about him. When we think of the kings of history, uh, how did they treat those who opposed their rule? Well, if they were nice, they threw them in prison. If they weren't so nice, they killed them. Uh, But our king is very different. He wants all those who oppose him uh, to be redeemed from their sins, their sin of rebellion against him. He's completely different. And as subjects of the king, it's our job to bear this good news of salvation for the forgiveness of sins in the name of our king. We are called to bear that out to the very ends of the earth. So, if that is our mission, what must we do? Well, we pray. First and foremost, we pray. We pray for the lost, those who don't know the king of glory, We pray for our nation, New Zealand. We pray for our government, and not just our nation and our government, across the world. Pray for them all, that they would see Jesus as their king, because he is their king already, and they need to know that. They are called to follow him. We all are. So firstly, pray, but also use your influence. Use your influence as parents, Uh, in your careers, as citizens, as taxpayers, friends, and family members, use the influence that you have to gently and prayerfully and confidently teach the world about the reality that Jesus Christ is King and that he died for the forgiveness of sins. If we love the people of this world that we live in, we must teach them about Jesus Because he is not only the king who judges sin, he's also the one who rescues his people from their sins. So if we take these two consequences of uh, the rule of God to heart, Christ-empowered security and boldness, but also using our influence to be a part of his mission, it really should change every little bit of our lives, the smallest of decisions and the biggest ones too. Uh, The German Christian... Dietrich Bonhoeffer risked his life standing up against the Nazi regime. Uh, He fought against that evil because he understood what it meant that Jesus Christ was Lord. There are a lot of German Christians who didn't, but Bonhoeffer did. And 
He did because he knew that God made and owned everything. And the only way Bonhoeffer could do his king's work in Germany at that time was to stand up against the evil that he saw going on. And he did so with a confidence, a confidence that comes from knowing that the creator of the world is on your side, that you are sharing in his mission and not some worldly one. Christians who saw Jesus as just Lord of themselves and not Lord of the world stood quietly on the, by on the sidelines. And it was in response to people with this kind of view that Bonhoeffer wrote these words. He said, we must deny that there are spheres of life which are exempt from the Lordship of Christ, that do not need to listen to his word. What belongs to Christ is not a district of the world, but the whole world entirely. So the basis of the King of Glory's rule is the fact that it's, well, it's simple. He made it. He made it all, and it is his. So that's our first point. The second is this, the character of the king's people. That's what David talks about. And we see that in verse 3, where he asks two questions. He says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And then he asks, who may stand in his holy place? In other words, David is asking, what kind of person can dwell with this king of glory? What kind of person? Uh, what kind of person gets the privilege of knowing him and dwelling with him, following him, and sharing in the blessings of his kingdom? Well, when the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the sort of context of the psalm, when the Ark of the Covenant was being carried up to Jerusalem by David, this question had serious significance for him. Because God would only let certain people under certain conditions bear the Ark. He would only let certain people under certain conditions go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle where God dwelt. There was and there is a barrier to entry. And for us in a culture that places a lot of importance on tolerance, the answer to David's question about who is allowed in is clear and it's shocking. Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol, or swear by what is false. Well, who has clean hands? Well, that's the person who has never sinned against God with their body. Who is the one with the pure heart? Well, that's the one who has never thought anything evil, whether it's selfish or lustful or anything like that. And who is the one who does not lift up his soul to an idol? Well, it's the person who has never valued anything in their lives more than God. Are any of us that clean? And if the king of glory is in battle against sin and evil, are our hands clean of that sin and evil? Don't we have in us the very stain of evil that he's at war against? The Bible recognizes our uncleanness when it says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Our selfishness, our lack of love for our creator makes us an enemy. And so we might hear this and we might think David is being intolerant. Uh, but the reality is anything but that. Because remember the context of the psalm of David and the Israelites walking up the holy hill to Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. Well, somehow the Israelites who were with David bearing the Ark were clean to do that task. They had to be clean to be allowed to ascend that hill. 
And they weren't clean, as we might think from reading this, because they were sinless. They were clean because of sacrifice. God had given the Israelites a way to uh, pay for the price of their sins, and it involved constant, bloody sacrifice. In 1 Samuel 6, 17, we read about this event, and it says that they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. He also did that at the start of their journey up the hill. It's always been this way that our sin requires blood to be spilt. It's that bad. It's that serious. And either it's our blood or something else's. And so for the Israelites, that was a regular animal sacrifice that kept going year in and year out. But Christians believe that Jesus, the King of glory, was nailed to the cross to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. That's not intolerance, is it? That is the most powerful display of love the world has ever witnessed. So Christians, people who follow Jesus, the King of glory, believe that the Creator, the one who made us and is King over the whole world, made himself a sacrifice so that we could be clean, so that we could live in him and live with him forever. That is the gospel. Uh, we live with him in the sinful world now and in the sinless world to come. So if you don't follow the king of glory, if you don't follow Jesus, but if you want to be a part of the ceremony of the king, if you want to be cleansed from your sin within and without, and if you know that you are not clean, stop going the way that you're going. Turn around and follow Jesus. Follow the King of glory. Trust in him. Listen to his word to us in the scriptures, and his sacrifice for you will stand. Uh, verses 5 and 6 are this beautiful promise that comes along with being clean and being cleansed by Christ. Verse 5, he, the clean one, will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. The promise is that God will make us righteous, that we will have a chance to share in the blessings that the Father has in store for the King of glory. So that is uh, the character of the subjects of the King. Finally, we reach the climax of the psalm that Margaret read so well, we see the worthiness of the King of Glory. We started our psalm early on, sort of low on the earth, and then we went up the hill uh, with the Israelites, and now we're at the gates to the city of heaven, and the herald cries out in verse 7 to the waiting city, Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. And the heavenly beings in this heavenly city of the Lord reply in verse 8, who is this king of glory? What is his identity? And the herald responds, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Why is he mighty? Well, he's mighty because he's fought against sin, evil, and death, and come out victorious. Now in jubilation, the herald raises his voice again in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The angels question 
knowing full well the answer, because they've been waiting for him. And the herald, in the final verse, probably shining with joy as he shouts, says, the Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. David started the psalm off, if you remember, talking about creation. And this triumphant entry into God's dwelling place should remind us of something else that happened at the beginning of the world. I haven't calculated how many greats, but our great, 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 and so on, granddad Adam was once cast out of God's dwelling place, the Garden of Eden. And if you remember, angels with flaming swords were placed to guard the way so that he could never enter again, and no one unworthy could ever enter again. Adam was judged as unworthy. He was judged as unclean. And ever since, the children of Adam, that's us, have had a broken relationship with God. Well, I hope you can see in verses 7 to 10 of Psalm 24 that we are finally meeting the one who the angels will let past. The one who the angels will let back into the holy dwelling place of God. And his, his name is Jesus Christ, the conqueror of death and of sin. We see in the psalm that he is strong, that he is mighty, he is worthy, and he is glorious. And by his sacrifice, we can be members of his procession. We can go with him as he passes by where children of Adam and Eve have no right to go. Those left outside the city, though, will be without the good things of God. As his enemies, they will suffer under the weight of their sins and hopelessness forever. So we know that this world needs our king. It desperately needs this king of glory who can lead them into the holy city. And we need to tell this world about him. We can't let the world sort itself out. Uh, that is not a recipe for success. And again, for us, what does that mean? Well, it starts just by being upfront with the world about who we are, our identity, followers of Jesus. Not perfect, but saved by the perfect one. It also means being upfront with uh, the reality of the world, the true state of this world. No matter what people might think, Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth, and we all need him and him alone if we want to be clean. So do your friends and your family know your identity? Do they know that you're a Christian who loves and follows Jesus? And do they know your heartfelt desire, the thing that you want most for them in the world, is for them to come to the King of glory and repentance and for salvation. Do they know that? If they don't, pray. Pray for the opportunity that you can have uh, that moment to share that with them, to speak with them, and resolve yourself with the boldness that comes from knowing that God created everything, that you have his mission, this powerful God's mission, uh, to give you the strength to make it clear going forward that when you form new friendships, when you spend quality time with people, that they would know who you are and your desire for them. Psalm 24 is a picture of what it will look like at the end of time, especially in those last verses. Christ will lead us, his people, who he has cleansed by his blood, into his holy city. And there will be no more sin, no more separation, and no more sadness 
Might we follow this King of glory and declare his worthiness wherever God has placed us in this land? Let me pray. Lord, we have considered your reign over all things this morning. By your Spirit, apply that truth to the very edges of our lives. We declare that you are the only true God and that you are worthy of all our praises. Amen.